end of May, so I want to encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 13. We did the first 12 chapters of Acts last year, and you can find them on uh, the church website, risenlifeutah.org, under the uh, sermons tab. They're on pages 5, 6, and 7 if you want to check out the first 12 chapters, what we had to say about that. And as we go through this, we, uh, we have some reading plans for the book of Acts that will take you through the entire book. Um, one of them has devotions that go along with it, and the other one does not. It's just reading. But those are in your Uversion app, and they're also on MyRisenLifeUtah.org. So if you would like to check those out, you can do that. But um, we're going to beginning to be beginning in uh, chapter 13 with the first, what's called the first missionary journey of Paul. And we look at this and we think, well, okay, yeah, that's, 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 that's cool. Paul's a missionary. Of course, he took missionary journeys. We, we fail to realize it's easy to forget how unprecedented this event was in the history of the church, in the history of the world. What happened in Acts chapter 13 in sending out missionaries had never been done before. And we look back and say, well, Paul was a missionary. Of course he took missionary journeys. He, he was not a missionary prior to this, and there was no such thing as a missionary and under these circumstances prior to this. This is unprecedented in the history of the world. They had never, God's people had never gone to other nations for the purpose of sharing the hope of the gospel. There was no such thing as a, an Old Testament evangelist. They just didn't have any. You can say, well, Jonah went to Nineveh and Amos went to the northern kingdom. Yeah, neither of them went there with a message of hope, <laughs> right? And Jonah, if that's a missionary's heart, we need, we need to reevaluate this thing. He was upset when they didn't get destroyed. He wanted to see the fireworks show. What happens in Acts chapter 13 is absolutely unprecedented. It has never happened before. When Barnabas and Saul are sent out on the first missionary journey, it has, was something that was never seen before. It was them intentionally going into all the earth. Now, persecution had forced them into the earth. You know, I think it's chapter 8 where it says the persecution came and it's kind of like a rock got dropped in a bucket of water and just psh, water went everywhere. That's what happened with persecution. They were sent all over the world they were forced to go, but friends, what happens in chapter 13 is when they are sent intentionally, deliberately, on the part of the church to do the work of missions. Now, Jesus laid the foundation for it when he sent out the disciples, we know that, but they were not, they were not sent to the whole world. They were sent to the Jews. He specifically told them. We have that passage in Matthew 9, 37, 38, we, we, we reference that a lot. When Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's Matthew 9, 38. We have friends here in town, a whole group of them who have their watches set, their uh, phones set every day for 9, 38, an alarm to go off to remind them to pray for the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the field. So he had spoken to the 12 here and he commissioned them to go out, but just a few verses later, he, he tells them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They were not ready to take the gospel to the Gentiles. They were not ready to take the gospel to the Samaritans. So what we see happen in Acts chapter 13 is completely unprecedented. It is, it is as new an experience for the church as the calling of Abraham was in Genesis chapter 12. 
But from the first time, you look over in Acts chapter 9, from the first time that we see Paul, who was then called Saul, being prayed for by Ananias, it was told, it was outlined to us what Saul's ministry was going to be. Acts chapter 9, verse 15, he is a chosen instrument of instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He's going to go to all of them. And Paul understood what his calling was. He delineated it clearly in Ephesians 3 when he said, this grace has been given to me. This grace, this ability to accomplish a task has been given to me. What was it? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And friends, going to the Gentiles was not for everybody. (laughs) It wasn't for everybody. Just like going to Guatemala or Japan or Jumanji or wherever you go isn't for everyone. Going to the Gentiles wasn't for everyone. Paul had been given a specific grace, a specific ability to accomplish a specific task to go to the Gentiles unlike anything that had ever been done before. But if Paul had not done what he could do... Who would have taken the gospel to the Gentiles? And where would the Gentiles be if Paul had not done what he could do? And what are you doing which would leave someone worse off if you were to stop doing it? What grace have you been given for the sake of the kingdom? Oh, I hadn't been given anything. You have been given something. And here's the saddest reality. The vast majority have been given something, are doing something, and have absolutely no clue of it. That's why, friends, we need a relationship. We need a relationship with one another where we can have somebody put their arm around our shoulder and say, listen, here's what you're doing in my life. Thank you. (laughs) We need to be sure and do that. But what is it that we're doing that if we were not to do it, someone would suffer? And friends, in the area of real-life multiplication, you may not be able to go, you may not be able to fund, you may not be able to preach, you may not even be able to share your faith coherently yet, But what are you doing apart from which the work of the kingdom will suffer? Every one of us has something we can do, and the vast majority of us are already doing it and probably don't even realize it. And friends, in a day when people are more interested in gaming than in engagement, (laughs) what are you doing to bring people to Christ? And almost as important as that question is this next question, what are we doing to replace ourselves? That's what multiplication is about. Friends, we have got to have transformation. That is done by the work of the cross in our lives. We sang it this morning. If the cross brings transformation, then let's do this thing. But friends, when it comes to multiplication, what are we doing to multiply who we are into the lives of other people? Because the simple reality is it, it doesn't matter how successful you are. A success without a successor is a failure. We must replace ourselves for the work of the kingdom. Now, Paul was uniquely gifted, equipped to travel the world. Before Holland America existed, there were no chocolate Thursday nights on the pleasure cruises he took. He was uniquely equipped to be able to endure the difficulties that travel in that day did. Let's take a look for a minute at where he went. Oh, I'm going to need one of those pointers at some point. At some point, I'll need a pointer. Okay. So they come up from Antioch here on the top right. 
north of Syria there. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Ooh, look at the magic pointer. And they, they, they sail down to Cyprus, land at Salamis there, and they preach the gospel all the way through the um, island of Cyprus. This is the Mediterranean saw. See, it's sea if it's present tense. It's saw if it's past tense. Mediterranean saw. Never mind. But anyway, this is Israel over on the right. I pulled a muscle stretching for that one. I hope you appreciate it. <laughs> preach the gospel all the way through the island of Cyprus and end up down in Paphos. Now listen, thank you. These are some Gentile regions where he's going. This is the first of three missionary journeys which we're going to be talking about over the next few months. This is Tur- modern-day Turkey up here. Greece is going to be over here to the west, and then Italy is over to the west of that. These are some extremely Gentile places. Paul always went to the synagogue first if there was one in town. We see that regularly. And those Jews would have been there as the result of business enterprise or persecution. But they were not there for the purposes of evangelism. And here's, here's the reality that I want us to catch this morning. This enormous missions endeavor, which we talk about, we look at Paul as, a, as the missionary, we look at Barnabas as the missionary, we talk about the three missionary, missionary journeys. All of this came as a result of, listen, the entire missionary movement came as a result of one local church who stepped out on what they thought they heard God saying. They obeyed him and sent someone to do the work because of one local church. Don't ever minimize. Don't ever, don't ever say, well, we just have such a small little tree. We can't do much. We can do everything that God has called us to do. Amen? And the church in Antioch thought. They heard God say, I want you to do some missions. They had never done it before. They didn't know what it looked like. They get to write the first chapter of the book. (laughs) And because of their obedience of one local church, the entire missionary movement is begun. Look there in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was uh, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mannion, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. How in the world did Saul make it into that list? The guy who oversaw the stoning of Stephen in chapter 7. How did he make it into the list of the prophets and teachers and Antioch? And the reason is because Saul, the last name in that list, was brought into that group by Barnabas, the first name in that list. That's what relationship does for you. After Saul's conversion in chapter 9, it says in verse 20 that immediately he began to proclaim the gospel in the synagogues, saying Jesus is the Son of God. But those early Christians who we think were just paragons of faith and and strength were as really just a whole lot like us. Because when they heard Paul preaching, their conclusion was they were all afraid of him because they did not believe he was a disciple. They thought he came in to try and infiltrate into their group so he could get their names and have them thrown in jail or lose a job or killed. So they, they, they were a whole heck of a lot like us. But Barnabas, this guy Barnabas, he saw something in this man Saul. And it says in verse 27, Acts 9, 27, that Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. He vouched. Barnabas vouched for this man, Saul, and said, no, this is a genuine conversion here. 
And as cool as we think missionary travels are, these missionary journeys are now, I wonder how cool Paul looked in 923 when the Jews plotted to kill him, and in verse 25 when they lowered him out, the, uh, out of the city over the wall down in a basket. How many of you have been lowered in a basket over a wall to escape? because you were preaching the gospel. I, it didn't, I, I bet it didn't look real glamorous there. I wonder how glamorous it felt in 14 when he was stoned, in 16 when he was thrown into prison with Silas, in 17 when he was mocked, when he was rioted against in 19, when he was arrested in 21, imprisoned for years in 24, shipwrecked in 27, snake bit in 28, and had his head cut off in about chapter 29 or 30. I wonder how glamorous it felt then. And friends, it's hard to find the glamour in what Paul said defined his life in 2 Corinthians 12.10 when he said weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. <laughs> we look back at it and go, wow, what an adventurous life. Paul looked at it and said, there are times that this really draws a negative pressure. <laughs> we'll work on that one later. Friends, it was Barnabas. It was Barnabas who vouched for Saul. And his genuine conversion in chapter 9. And it was probably later that same year when Paul had upset so many pre people with his preaching that in 929 they were seeking to kill him. So the church leadership sent him to far away Tarsus. Now Tarsus is not on our little mapsy doodle. It's all the way over to the west of the Mediterranean there. And I wonder when Barnabas was putting... Saul in that boat, if he put a little bookmark in his brain. I wonder if the Holy Spirit whispered to him, keep an eye, remember this guy, remember this guy, get him on your Facebook, you'll want to follow this guy, get him on Twitter. I wonder how it happened. Maybe, maybe God reminded Barnabas later, 3, 14, 17, we don't know how many years later when the internet finally made it to Barnabas' neighborhood and he could look up. No, he didn't have any of those advantages. God reminded him of Saul and however many years later he got in a boat, went across the Mediterranean to Tarsus because he knew that's where Saul was from and went and found someone he had not seen in years for the sake of the missionary endeavor. Don't know why, don't know how he did it. But for some reason, Saul came to his mind, and Barnabas in Acts 11 went and found him. Brought him back to Antioch, and when they, they had an Acts 11 fund in, in Acts. Did you know that? Acts 11 fund in Antioch. I know, it's weird. Where they took up an offering for those in the church who were going to suffer with a uh, difficulty that was about to come. They took up an offering, and who did they send it to Jerusalem with? Acts 11.30, took it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas is recognizing in this man someone that he can depend on. And in 12.25, when Barnabas and Saul came back from Jerusalem, when they had completed taking the offering down there, they brought with them someone else. They brought with them someone named John, whose other name was Mark. And now we have a three-man team. Now we have the team complete. So let's continue with our passage in Acts chapter 13. Look there in verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Notice the command and the will of the Holy Spirit in this passage. 
and by the way, he is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. He's an, he's an entity. He told them what to do. He told them to set aside, and this is the will of the Holy Spirit, which means he has will of his own. This is the reason, this is one of the reasons that we recognize the deity, the godness of the Holy Spirit. That the Bible says that the Father is God, the Bible says the Son is God, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is God, and then the Bible says there's only one God. Figure it out, write a book, and become a millionaire, okay? But that's what it says, and that's why we believe these things. But look at what the church did there. As stated earlier, this is, you cannot underestimate the power of a single church. This is unprecedented in the history of the church. They began the missionary movement for the entire church simply because they did what they thought they had been told to do, and that was send people out. And it's a wonderful thing to bond together as larger organizations for the purpose of missions. We're going to, there's going to be an announcement today about a, a missions offering that we're going to take along with other churches across the country for the sake of missions. It's a wonderful thing to bond together in mission organizations to send folks into the mission field. And we can afford things as groups that we cannot afford singularly. But friends, I'll tell you what. There is a bond, there is a fellowship, there is a blessing that comes when individual churches own and send out missionaries of their own. Our church in Jackson, Mississippi still supports over 10 missionaries all around the world. And it's a wonderful thing that anytime any of us go back to that church, we're, we're ministered to, we're encouraged, we're blessed in very real and personal ways. And what a blessing it is to have the Galsters here today who, before we ever met them, felt like God had called them to the mission field. And then they came here, served so wonderfully here. We were so blessed. And now with them serving in Jumanji or wherever in East Africa they serve, I do know where they serve, but we're going to leave it at East Africa. And then when they come back to the States, I overheard one of them the other day say, yeah, this feels like we're coming home. Wow. What a blessing. Why? Because you people have adopted them. You have adopted Mark and Wendy Hoshizaki so that when they retire from missions in Japan here in a few months, where are they coming? They're coming home. <laughs> They're coming here because you have loved on them. You have accepted them. You have been a blessing to them. And friends, there, there's, a, there's a beautiful thing about organizations bonding together and becoming, sending missionaries. But there is something about the local church loving on, encouraging, blessing missionaries that they recognize to be their own that we just cannot forget. And the local church in Antioch began the modern missionary movement by doing three things, by hearing God, having faith and boldness enough to obey God, and then sending Barnabas and Saul out for the express purpose of sharing the gospel in an itinerant fashion. How did they do it? What did they do? Let's look there in verse 4. Acts 13, 4. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, look at that, they, it doesn't even say they were sent out by Antioch. They were sent out by the Holy, Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They always went to the synagogues first. If there was a synagogue, that's where they went first. And they had John to assist them. But when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named 
bar Jesus. Let's look one more time at where they went. There where they are. They're down in the very southwest corner of Cyprus down there at Paphos. And they come across this guy named bar Jesus, whose other name is Elymas. Look at what it says in verse 7. They're, they begin witnessing. And the proconsul, the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the same guy bar Jesus, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at him intently and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. The moral of that story, do not get between Paul and an opportunity to witness. And it's here that the name of Saul is changed to Paul. And it also says again that he was filled with the Spirit. He's already been filled with the Spirit up in Acts 9, 17, but it says here again in verse 9 that he was filled with the Holy Spirit again, just like Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit three times in Acts 2 and then in the top of 4 and then at the bottom of 4. And the reason for that is we are conscious, just like his mercies are new every morning, our need for his empowerment is new every morning. Now look, I'm going to quote Martin Luther. This is Martin Luther. This is not me. If I were to have said this, I would not be able to speak to you right now because Donna would have removed my tongue. I did not say this, okay? But Martin Luther said, no woman should say anything until after she has recited the Lord's Prayer. It's a bit sexist. Aware of that. It might be a good rule for every one of us, though, to remember, boy, before I say something, I need to make sure that, dear God, please, be glorified in what I'm about to say. And friends, what we find in the book of Acts is that every time it says that someone was filled with the Spirit, within five verses they are saying something. They are either preaching, they are praying, or they are preaching the gospel. And what that lets us know is, friends, we cannot do this on our own. We cannot do it by our own power. We have got to have the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit to accomplish this work. He is the only one who can do it. So from there... From there, they hop on a plane, take a flight, and head over to the mainland, Turkey. In verses 13, it says, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Look at where they went. They came up here to Italia, and then they went up to Antioch and Pisidia, right there. And when they got there, John Mark said, you know, this, is, this isn't what I bargained for. <laughs> I'm going home. Maybe he missed the comforts of his serta, posturepedic. But John Mark said, I'm done. And this is the beginning of a rift between Paul and Barnabas. It will later be the stated cause for their separation. 
They continued on. Look there in verse 14. Antioch and Pisidian on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And seeing that the the synagogue leaders, seeing they had guests, look there in verse 15. The rulers of the, the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. They saw they had visitors. Surely these visitors have something they would like to share with us. Visitors, won't you stand up and share with us what God's doing in your life? If you're a guest with us today, we're so thankful that you're here. We are not going to invite you to stand up and share what God's doing in your life. Not today at least. Okay? So here's what happened. Paul grabbed the microphone, stood up and gave the first of ten sermons that he gives in the book of Acts. In your, in your Version Bible app, those ten ser- uh, the passages for those ten sermons are listed. We don't have them here. But he stood up and gave the first of his sermons in the book of Acts. And there were three kinds of people. There were three types of people you would find in a synagogue. You would find Jews. You would make sense. You would find converts. And you would find God-fearers. In this sermon, we see all three of them. Look there in verse 16. We have men of Israel and you who fear God. That's numbers 1 and 3. And then down in verse 43, we have the second, the devout converts to Judaism. All three of them are listed here in this, in this passage. And the result of Paul's preaching, look there in verse, 30, in verse 44, is that the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, and everybody was happy. Everybody was thrilled. They all went home and had, had some of Benjamin's pulled pork for lunch, right? No, no. No, they were not all happy. The Bible says in verse 45, And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Isn't that tragic? Jealousy is a, jealousy is a real drag. Jealousy is a terrible thing. Listen, the Jews were so jealous of Jesus that when they brought him in front of Pilate, even Pilate recognized why they brought him there. Even Pilate could see their jealousy. It says in Mark 15, Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up. Even even Pilate recognized it. And when the Jewish leaders saw the crowds leaving and taking their attendant offering with them, They got scared. It evoked jealousy on the parts of those who saw their congregation leaving. Listen, jealousy is listed as a reason for the dissension between the Jews and the Christians in Acts 5, Acts 13, and Acts 17. They were jealous. And we need to be, listen, we need to be very careful with this. That when we see other churches that are preaching the gospel, that are preaching that Jesus is Lord and their salvation and no one other than him, we need to be careful that we don't start getting jealous of that. That we don't start getting worried about, oh, no, what's going to hell? Oh, no, there's a new person in town. They're going to take all of our people. Oh, what are we going to do then? Friends, John the Baptist said it well. He's got to increase. I got to decrease. And that's okay. How many, uh, what, what did Jesus do when the rich young ruler turned around and walked off? What did Jesus do to get him to stay? Nothing. And when the multitudes left in mass in John chapter 6 because they wanted more food and Jesus said, you know, the buffet is closed. And they all started leaving. What did Jesus do to get them to come back? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We'll have Wednesday night dinner together. We'll have dinner on the grounds. I'm really sorry about that. Please don't go. No. No, he looked at his disciples and said, you guys leaving too? Jesus would, Jesus would never have been invited to preach at a church growth, a church growth seminar. Friends, he did not demand growth. His his desire was not that big numbers show up. What he demanded 
was decision and commitment. And his statement was in Luke chapter 9, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Decide something and commit to it. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from John Adams when he said there are only two creatures of value on the face of the earth, those with commitment and those who demand commitment from others. And friends, Jesus demands commitment. And if people want to leave, and if people, listen, we have stood ministries in front of you here in the past, and we will do it again, who are coming in this town, and we say, look, here's what's going on. Let us introduce them to you. And if you feel like God's calling you to go with them, go. And friends, that's, that's the only attitude that we can have in this place because all that matters is the kingdom. All that matters is the kingdom. Growing in any way God chooses to grow the kingdom. So, Paul looks at them there at the end of the chapter in verse 46. and says, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the world, the earth. And the end result of their preaching in verse 48 was... When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God, word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Their, their conclusion of it was, yippee, finally, finally. The Jews have been in this town for how many years, and they've never given us the gospel, and now, finally, finally, someone is giving us a chance to hear the gospel, to see the light, and to have a relationship with God. All this did was infuriate the Jews all the more. But Paul and Barnabas took their, their opposition not as an invitation in verse 15 to, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. They took, they took their opposition as God letting them know, you're done. You're done here. Time to, verse 51, shake off the dust from your feet against them, and they went to Iconium. Paul and Barnabas didn't get worried about it. They just went to the next station of service to the kingdom. But let's back up just for a minute. Let's go back up to the beginning of this chapter and see who the first convert on the first missionary journey was. We have a brother who runs a ministry to state capitals. He has a ministry in every state capital in the country, has a ministry in the nation's capital, and now he has ministries in capitals around the world. And his frustration is that he feels like the church has marginalized, set aside governmental leaders and thought they're just not in our realm. They're beyond hope. And, and so we've just kind of given up on them. But what he has done is developed ministry that takes the gospel into the, national, the state national capitals and once a week has Bible studies, prayer, including in Utah state capital, with senators who kind of come to them sometimes secretly, but to hear the gospel. And his frustration is, look how many political leaders are ministered to in the, in the Bible, including the very first convert on the very first missionary journey in the book of Acts. Look at what it says there in 13.9. Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately, immediately, look at the miracle that happened immediately. 
Verse 11, immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. An amazing miracle was manifest. God moved in a spectacular way to silence the opposition of his word being preached. And I think we're long past the day of saying that miracles are past because the simple reality is the Bible says they're not going to end before heaven. And secondly, too many of us have seen them in our own lives. <laughs> too many have been touched by miracles in our own lives. So we're not going to say that. We've seen the absolute divine intervention of God in our lives as well as the possibly more urbane but still miraculous reality of the technology that God has allowed to be revealed, uncovered in these days. Good grief, the opportunities that are available to us. I saw a vehicle one time. We were driving in Mississippi, and there was a minivan in front of us. And a Porsche came whipping around me. The minivan was in the left lane. I was around him. Porsche came around me and came around them and clipped. He was trying to get past in front of them again and clipped the front end of that van. Brand new Porsche. After he got stopped, um, he said, oh, no, I bought this Porsche. I hadn't even told my wife. And he's already wrecked it. Didn't know if he had insurance. He clipped that van, and that van started corkscrewing down the median in that highway there in Mississippi. And I told Donna, well, this isn't going to be good. We pulled off, and all the windows had blown out. And it was sitting on its side, I best I recall. And out of that van, here came Grandma, Mama, and, a, I don't know, about five, six kids. All of them were screaming, and none of them were scratched. I looked at Donna and said, we live in a day of miracles. This is unbelievable. Friends, I don't care if God is the one who reaches his hand down and touches and brings healing or it comes through medicine. I don't care. God is the one who does it. I have a friend that contacted him several months ago and he said, I have cancer. It's terminal cancer. It's in, if you have eight organs, he had it in nine. <laughs> I don't know how many. He said, they told me I'm going to die. Good friend. He's 50 years old, a little older maybe. And said they're going to try me on some chemo anyway. I said, well, buddy, we're going to pray. This man doesn't know the Lord. He, he's, he's, not in, he's, he's not a Christian. But I said, we're going to pray because he knew I was a Christian. And every time I talked to him, I said, we're going to pray again. And we prayed together and prayed together and prayed together. And at the end of, uh, at the end of December, he went to his doctor. And his doctor said, stage four, last year, and you are going to die. said, we can't find cancer anywhere. Now, why is there no cancer in that man's body? Is it because of chemo or is it because of God? I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. It has opened an opportunity, a door of witness, and so I was able to tell him, hey, you listen to me. God, we ask God to touch your body, and he has done it. We must respect, we must honor the blessing that he has sent. Now, as we look at this passage, we see an amazing miracle. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. I love this passage because it, it not only does it cite the miraculous, the agent of, con of conversion is confirmed. While the miraculous is glorious, it is not the means of salvation. And this passage lets us know that. The miracle arrested the attention of this man. And it testified to the divine power that Paul was preaching about. But friends, it was not the miraculous that saved him. 
Look at what it says there in verse 12. It tells us when the proconsul believed. Verse 12, it says, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. His belief was coincident in time with the miracle. He saw and he believed. But why did he believe? Was it because of the miracle? It continues and tells us why he believed, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Friends, we're not going to discredit either, but we are not going to diminish the teaching of the gospel of the Lord at all. Because it is the means by which eternal life comes to each one of us. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, is what Paul said, because it is the power of God unto salvation. That is the power of God. Does the miraculous come? Yeah, it does come, and I want to see more of it. But friends, if you're going to wait until the miraculous comes to start sharing the gospel, we are going to miss the most powerful opportunity, the most powerful tool we have on this world to share the gospel. He was astounded at the teaching of the Lord, and that is the reason he got saved. Friends, listen. You you, you might need a miracle right now. You might need a miracle in your body, your finances, your family, your job, whatever. Then let's ask God for one. But here's the most important thing I can ask you is God speaking to your heart today. Is he speaking to you about something he's ready to deal with you on? Is he dropping in your heart? Is he speaking to your heart about a sin we just need to take care of? About a blessing, encouragement that he wants you to be? About a neighbor that he wants you to pray for and then put feet to your prayer and you be the one who takes the gospel to him? What is he speaking to you about? Is he speaking to you about your need for Jesus? Then if he is speaking, this is a holy moment. If God is speaking to your heart, this is a holy moment. God shows up, it's holy. Amen? In Habakkuk 2, it says the Lord is in, God is in his temple. Let all the earth keep silent. If we were just to be silent just for a minute, what would he say to you? Friends, when the whirlwind of God's word, his presence reaches down and touches the life of that proconsul, this is a holy moment. And if he is speaking to your heart right now, this is a holy moment. What is he saying to you? How can we pray with you? How can we pray for you? Would you like to know what it means to be a Christian? Listen, it is as simple and profound as John 13, 7. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only God, and the Son you have sent. Do you know Jesus Christ? Oh, well, I know Jesus Christ. But you know what he says in the interesting thing over in Matthew chapter 7? He said, he said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, because I never knew you. To know requires being known. Jesus is going to look at some and say, I never knew you. Are we open in front of him? Are we as vulnerable in front of him as Adam and Eve were at the end of Genesis 2 when it says they were naked and knew no shame? Or is Jesus with us as he did with them in Genesis 3 saying, where are you? Come searching for us and we're hiding. No, there's got to be an openness on our part to say, God, I want to be known. I want to know, but I want to be known. And if you are here today and have never accepted Jesus, it could be easy to say, well, I'm scared to come to him. I'm afraid of what he's going to say. I was talking with somebody on the phone yesterday. I'm afraid to talk about this because I'm afraid of what, what, what people are going to say. I'm afraid, here's what say. I'm afraid they're going to say, you are broken and cannot be fixed. What an opportunity for the gospel to penetrate. Amen? No, we are not broken beyond repair. Because Jesus said in John 6, anyone who comes to me, anyone who comes to me, I'm not going to kick them out. I'm not going to cast them out. 
anybody who comes to me, what do you need to come to him for today? What would you like to have him minister to you today? We're going to have some folks who can pray with you, pray for you. Do you have something in your body that you need God to touch? Do you need a miracle in your finances, your family, your job, whatever it is? We'd love to pray with you. Do you need to know what it means to be a Christian? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Father, thank you that you care about the nations. God, that you work transformation in us. You work transformation in Paul in chapters 9 through 12. You, you transformed who he was by the power of your cross so that in chapters 13 and following he can be an agent of multiplication. God, make us my agents of multiplication. Father, for those who are hearing your voice right now, we set this moment aside as a holy moment. God, we ask you to speak clearly. Father, for those who need prayer, I want to ask you to give them grace, give them strength to go to somebody who's going to pray for them and let us pray for them. Father, for those who need to know Jesus, God, reveal yourself to them in such perfect love that they say yes to you today. Let's stand together and sing. There is a river of gladness that pours from Emmanuel's veins. The sinner was plunged beneath the flood of God's hand. Since then I walk in forgiveness. All of my guilt was erased. Chains of the past, broken at last, I got saved. Oh, I got saved. I'm undone by the mercy of Jesus. I'm undone by the goodness of the Lord. I'm restored and made right. He got a hold of my life. I got Jesus. I could I want Got a hold of my life. I've got Jesus. I 